Hello and welcome to this new edition of Viewpoints. My name is Boris Shasain. I'll be with you for the next half hour. On today's Viewpoints, wake up and smell the coffee and you could well be buying the company. That's what happened to a couple who fell in love with the local roastery on Cortez Island. They are now the proud owners of Becca's Beans in British Columbia. We were at the Gorge Harbor Resort and I ordered a cup of coffee from the food truck and it stopped me in my tracks. I thought, this is the best coffee I've had in a long, long time. And I asked the guy, what is it? He goes, oh, it's, it's drip coffee. And I said, no, no, what, what coffee is this? He goes, it's Becca's Beans. We'll stay on Canada's west coast where humpback whales have been making an impressive comeback over the past 40 years. The theory is they like the food, but at the same time killer whales remain an endangered species, climate changes could be responsible. When you take the ferry to Cortez Island, you can actually see the whales feeding in the summertime in our waters. 15 years ago, you would have never seen a humpback. And in New Brunswick, the Wallastake Nation has filed a new title claim. Several major corporations are named as defendants, as well as the provincial and federal governments. Let me speak to New Brunswickers who have homes on our traditional land. The Wallastake Nation does not want to displace you from your homes. And while we are only seeking the return of specific parcels, we maintain our claim to Aboriginal title to all of our traditional territory. This and more on Viewpoints. Follow us on Twitter at Canada LJI. Listen to all our news online at canada-invo.ca. So Becca's Beans is a local coffee business started by Becky and Scott Newston in 2008. It is now in the care of Doug and Melanie McCaffrey. The couple moved to Cortez Island from Central Saanich earlier this year. They are overwhelmingly pleased with the warm welcome they received, as well as the wild beauty of the new island. Cortez is located off the coast of British Columbia. It's only 25 kilometers long, 13 kilometers wide. It has a population of 1,035 permanent residents. Our journalist on Cortez Island, Anastasia Avakumova, met with the daring couple, Doug and Melanie McCaffrey. I'd like to start by asking, what brought you to Cortez? It might have been the coffee. <laughs> well, a number of things, actually. We've always loved the area, and earlier this summer, we were at the Gorge Harbor Resort, and I ordered a cup of coffee from the food truck, and it stopped me in my tracks. I thought, this is the best coffee I've had in a long, long time. And I asked the guy, what is it? And he goes, oh, it's, it's drip coffee. And I said, no, no, what, what coffee is this? He goes, it's Becca's Beans. And that's what really started the ball rolling. We discovered that um, the owners of Becca's Breen, Scott and Becky, were ready to make a big change in their life. And uh, the roastery was available. And we looked into it further. And here we are, roasting coffee in paradise. Truthfully, I think we were also looking for a quieter lifestyle at this point in our lives, slower paced, that kind of thing. So we found the ideal place, I think. So it sounds like you're enjoying it so far. Oh, it's just so fantastic to be here. It really is. And we've met so many wonderful people that are so welcoming and so friendly. And just being away from the rat race of Victoria has been really nice. She's really, really calling it home now already. The couple moved here from Central Saanich at the end of October, and their very first few days on the island coincided with a marathon power outage. That was our big welcome. 
by the two and a half days of no power. It was the movers leaving, driving down the highway, and the, the lights went out for three days. So here we were with all these unpacked boxes. Didn't even know where our toothbrushes were. <laughs> it was a good initiation. But it's been smooth sailing since then. Everybody's been so helpful and very, very welcoming. We're just thrilled that we be part of this community. What we love about it is, you know, Cortez has traditionally, historically, been a working island, which really suits us. Not that we really want to kind of cut back on the work aspect of life, but, you know, everybody just seems so involved in different projects, and everybody seems busy but at a very good pace, which really suits us as well, and hopefully we can contribute to that. And we decided, you know, I think the world right now needs a good cup of coffee and love sweet love. So hopefully we can provide both. Had you had previous experience with coffee in the commercial sense? Not. Well, no, don't say that. We've had years and years of experience enjoying coffee, like pretty much everybody. <laughs> but uh, part of the transition was training in the roastery, a very intensive training by probably the best teacher we could ever ask for, and that was Becky and Scott. I think we've got it down pat. We've been asking people for feedback. It's all been very good so far. So had you known Scott and Becky prior to this? We had met them first in the summertime. I came out for some initial training in the roastery, and uh, it was like a working holiday, really. It was so much fun working with those two, and we became actually really, really good friends. So we do supply, I think, most of the major grocery stores, like the co-op and the markets. And the And But we do have some who buy it privately, just what they like and what they need. So we've got a good mix there, I think. And people have been asking for custom blends as well. And with Christmas coming, things are heating up in the roastery. (laughs) Well, it sounds like it's keeping you busy. And I'm sure it's also fascinating just to learn everything. Yeah, coffee roasting, we were finding, really is a blend of art and science. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. So I'm more of the science person. So I've been researching and learning all about the grades and the blends and the quality and all that stuff. And Doug is the artist. He is. He's the one that does the roasting, and he can get creative with that, with temperature and time and stuff, and he's good at that. So it took us a little while to straighten out how we were going to work together and who does what better, but I think we've got it done. So I'm the science girl, and he's the artist. Do you think you're going to keep the name? I would like to keep the name, that's for sure, because it's pretty special, and it's got quite a legacy attached to it. Yeah, you know, people are familiar with the name. I can't see any making any changes there. Maybe a little bit of eventually rebranding. Yeah, I don't see any real reason to change too many things right off the bat anyway. Quite often people become a little dislodged when they reach for their favorite product and something's changed and uh, we don't want to be the new Coke, that's for sure. <laughs> They're considering expanding their distribution area. We've had a little bit of interest from London Powell River. I know Becky hasn't really sold her beans off the island at all, Becky and Scott, but we're, you know, with the new water taxi going over to London, we're kind of looking into exploring, dropping off some beans on the mainland, at least around London, Campbell River anyway, because they need coffee too. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Coffee powers the people. Well, I'd love to also hear about your backgrounds, just from what you mentioned in our emails. It sounds like there's so much fascinating stuff that you're bringing with you to Cortez. Well, as a young girl, I spent all my summers when I wasn't in school on a farm, a working farm. 
But I really have always loved gardening and just getting my hands dirty. You know what I mean? Was a caregiver at one point and then moved to a farm market and worked there and loved it. Had a garden at my old home and absolutely loved it. So it's wonderful to be here and have a garden and be able to grow things. You may want to mention, too, that you have... uh soap making skills and you're also a herbologist and an aromatherapist. Yeah, and I'm just looking into trying to replace some of the medicinal herbs that I did grow when we were in the Central Sanit because I don't see a lot in the garden here. We've been so busy learning in the roastery and we're still trying to unpack. <laughs> so, you know, we're kept busy with that. But I do plan to stretch my wings on that and meet people who are into uh, herbology and aromatherapy as well. And Doug, yours is film. Yeah, I also restore and, and scan motion picture film. I'm just reinventing my studio here right now. It, there used to be a couple of pottery kilns, but now there's going to be some uh, film activity going on in that studio. I'm chomping at the bit to get going on that. You know, by the way, there's like millions of cans of film around the world that really does need help. And it's just a matter of time before this film disintegrates and become unwatchable and disappear. And I think that's a legacy that we should maintain. We've got a strong film heritage in this country and around the world. And I'm just doing my part to keep film alive. You've been listening to an interview with Doug and Melanie McCaffrey, who are the new owners of Becca's Beans on Cortez Island. New studies published by the BC Cetacean Sightings Network indicates humpback whales have been making an impressive comeback in the North Pacific Ocean over the past 40 years, but the network also says the resident killer whale population in the region remains endangered with only 74 animals. This is due mainly to motor vessel noise and contaminants found in their preferred food, Chinook salmon, that are also in decline. Reporter Greg Osoba speaks with Cortis Island naturalist and guide George Cirque and Friends of Cortis Island Society Board Chair Max Thaysen about their observations on the species shift. A current report from the BC Cetacean Sightings Network says humpback whales have made an impressive comeback in the North Pacific Ocean over the past 40 years. From a population of just 1,400 in the mid-1960s to a current estimate of 18 to 20,000 according to the network. Sightings have become common in the North Salish Sea, also known as the Strait of Georgia. According to Cortez Island naturalist guide George Cirque, the Cetacean Sightings Network also says the resident southern killer whale population remains endangered with only 74 animals, due mainly to motor vessel noise and contaminants found in their preferred food, Chinook salmon, which the network says are also in decline. According to naturalist Cirque, The species shift is all about food. When you take the ferry to Cortez Island, you can actually see the whales feeding in the summertime in our waters. And 15 years ago, you would have never seen a humpback. But now, the whole of Salish Sea, all the way down, has humpback whales. And they're feeding uh, primarily on herring. So my theory as to why the whales have come back is because the salmon population has dropped. 
So there's more food around for the whales. And you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And so you have the whales arriving here and they go, look at all the feed here. You got anchovies, you got herring. And so they're feeding there in these waters and gorging themselves on these fish. Cirque regularly observes and reports on marine life in the Salish Sea and says along with the whale species shift, a new seabird is on the scene. In October, when I was in the Discovery Passage between Quadra and Campbell River, there were shearwaters. I've never seen shearwaters in the Salish Sea, a.k.a. the Georgia Strait, ever in over 50 years of birding. This bird is related to the albatross, long, narrow wings, flap, flap, glide. They, they cruise the oceans. The sooty shearwater flies, get this, 40,000 kilometers in a year. They nest in the South Pacific Islands and they do a giant figure eight. They go off towards South America, and then diagonally across the whole Pacific Ocean to Japan, Alaska, come down our coast and go diagonally across to Australia and the South Pacific again. And, like the humpbacks, there's one thing drawing this new species to the Salish Sea. And why are they here? Because of the food, right? Once again, leading back. So as... The salmon population has been decreasing. I believe all these other small fish, your herrings, your anchovies, their population's gone up. Like I was watching off the ferry and I could see clouds of fish in the water. So these birds being opportunistic, they've come down in the inside between Vancouver Island and the mainland and they've come down here because of the food. So it's not all doom and gloom. You know, oh, the salmon are all dying off. Ah, but the herring are doing well, and so are the shearwaters. Max Tyson, chair of the conservation and education organization Friends of Cortez Island, has concerns. When I read about expert takes on what's happening in the Salish Sea from people who incorporate a climate change analysis into their work, I'm super concerned. I've personally interviewed you know, shellfish disease researchers who describe some pretty significant events from just the temperature of the ocean changing over the last decade or two and how that sort of spells the end of the ocean as, we, as we've known it and as it's been known for the last at least tens of thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. Tyson says it's important to pay attention. the conditions in which we were raised or, you know, so the health of the ocean as we've known it seems normal and healthy and we often don't know or at least don't have like a visceral experience of what a healthy ocean ecosystem is actually like because it's so different from the one that we've always known and I think that that is happening, has happened, happens all the time and is is a force that we need From an environmental conservation perspective, Tyson believes collective action is needed. I have recently been unlearning the habit of thought that my personal choice 
choices and decisions have a great bearing on on how the world turns out and I'm realizing that I lost a lot of years focusing on that and that and now I think that you know collective action for change and holding decision makers accountable and demanding a transparent and open government and demanding a, an actually functioning democratic system um, are probably the most important things that we can do. Greg Osoba, CKTZ News, Cortez Island. on Twitter at Canada LJI. Listen to all our news online at canada-info.ca. We're now tuned into New Brunswick, where the Westica First Nation announced a precedent-setting legal action in the province. The nation has filed a title claim, which names several major corporations, mostly forestry companies, as defendants, along with the provincial and federal governments. The new claim replaces one filed last year. The company's name in the claim include J.D. Irving Limited, Irving Oil, N.B. Power, Acadian Timber, Twin Rivers Paper, H.J. Crables & Son, and D.A.V. Group as defendants. New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs says, questioned by the CBC, if we're going to have real truth and reconciliation going forward, on all issues, we need to understand exactly what our obligations are. It seems that it's only going to be accomplished through legal process, said Higgs. Other company officials refused to comment on the claim, which is based on peace and friendship treaties signed by the Wollastoke and the British Crown between 1725 and 1778. More with Erica Butler, our journalist and producer of the Tantramar Report based in Sackville. She met with Patricia Bernard, chief of the Matawask First Nation. The Wollastoke are seeking a declaration of Aboriginal title to about 5 million hectares of their traditional lands and also compensation from the Crown for allowing commercial operations on that land. Here's Chief Patricia Bernard of Madawaska First Nation. These corporations have benefited tremendously off of land that was given to them that they had no right to give. The Crown had no right to give that land. And so, and they paid either nothing for it or a small, like, consideration fee, and that was it. So that's not fair. Um, New Brunswickers who have paid for their property with fair market value, but you know, by all means, they should be able to enjoy what they've paid for. But these corporations not only got the land for free, they benefited immensely from it. So this is why we have to we have to name them. And these these few companies make up one fifth of of the the territory that we're seeking. That's that's just tremendous. That's huge. That's a million, close to a million hectares. Let me speak for a minute to New Brunswickers who have homes on our traditional lands and who rightfully have many questions about this development. While we are seeking title to our territory, the Wallistiqua Nation does not want to displace you from your homes. The only private landowners we are trying to get land back from are these six, J.D. Irving Limited, A.V. Group, Acadian Timber, Twin Rivers Paper, H.J. Crab and Sons, and NB Power. If you're not one of these companies, you have nothing to worry about. 
if the attorney general or the premier try to say otherwise, no, it's not true. And understand, it is actually the private interests of Irving and other corporations they are protecting. Don't let them mislead you. Joining the chiefs at the news conference Tuesday was Aboriginal rights lawyer Renee Pelletier, who spoke to the uniqueness of the new land claim. I'm not aware of any other Aboriginal title claim that uh, is quite exactly like this one. Of course, they're all they're all different because they're unique in their circumstances. Um, I think the the notion of um, seeking land uh, in a claim and a defendant being able to rely on the fact that they have paid, you know, fair market value for that land is not something that is new. Um, And so that is why in in this case, the only people that are being, the only companies that are being named by the Willistically Chiefs in this new action, uh, focus on those companies that have not, that can't benefit from that defense, that can't Uh, that have not paid market value for their land. So that sort of concept at law is is not new. Um, I think what is unique about New Brunswick is that unlike the decision that we saw um, by the Silco team several years ago in British Columbia, New Brunswick, that that territory was vastly unoccupied, um, lots of crown land, not really third-party interests in their territory, and so that could be sort of more clean-cut. In New Brunswick, the situation is very different. There is very little crown land back. And so if the Willistiquay were limited to only seeking back crown land, they would have very little return to them. And so as they've mentioned, they're not seeking to displace people who have paid good money for their homes, for their farms, et cetera. But those companies that have, you know, 20% of their claimed territory um, and have received that land for free, um, that is rightfully belongs to the Willistiquay. And so, you know, perhaps in that sense, it's a bit of a precedent. Um, but I, I think that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a question of fairness. The chiefs also addressed what would happen in the event of a legal win for their claim, saying that forestry and other operations could continue, but with input from the Willistiquay Nation. The chiefs repeatedly mentioned their duty and commitment to stewardship of the lands. We have the responsibility to look after this land. We have the responsibility to make sure that it's sustainable for the next seven generations to come. That's our our duty. That's our responsibility. We may have rights, but we have more responsibilities than we do rights. Chief Bernard acknowledged that the process would take decades to work its way through the courts, as did the smaller land claim settled by the province and the Madawaska First Nation. We've settled a specific land claim in our community that I started in 1998. And it's taken um, decades to get it done, but it's just all about not giving up. And we're, this is not, this isn't my first rodeo, so to speak. And I'm prepared to see this through as I'm sure as all the other chiefs are, because it's, it's what's right. It's justice. It's the truth. And, and that's what keeps us going. That was Madawaska First Nation Chief Patricia Bernard speaking at a news conference after announcing a new land claim on behalf of the Willistigwe Nation, which seeks to establish Aboriginal title to 5 million hectares of land in New Brunswick and names the provincial and federal governments, as well as a number of major corporations as defendants.
And for our last story today, we go to Pontiac, Quebec, where Dr. Maurice Lamarche has been working as a physician for more than 45 years. And now he's hanging up his white coat as one of the longest serving members of the region's healthcare system. Dr. Maurice Lamarche said that at first he thought he would stay only for five years or so in the region. The rest is history. Originally from Hawkesbury, Lamarche studied at the University of Ottawa. He first worked in the emergency department of the Pontiac Hospital. Many decades have since passed. What advice would he give to a young doctor starting out in the area? Well, the same he got when he first arrived in town. Don't burn yourself out. Caleb Nickerson in Pontiac had a chat with Dr. Lamarche. So we're here with Dr. Morris Lamarche, soon soon to be re- retired here, uh, a longtime doctor in, in the Pontiac region. First off, uh, congrats on, on your retirement. And uh, can I ask you uh, why you decided uh, that right now would be the the time to retire? Well, I've been doing this for 47 years, and uh, I, I just thought that uh, it was time uh, after so many years. I, I, I need to spend more time with my wife and, and my family, and uh, it's just time. Jeez, 47 years, that's that's absolutely incredible. Yes, well, it's a, it's a long time. I, uh, I think I just took it one day at a time, and uh, I had lots of uh, help with uh, solid colleagues, uh, and uh, which certainly helped. As I mentioned, everything was uh, had a, it was stable, and I, you know, it was a good environment, interesting work, and uh, not that far from the city. And uh, what what would you say that you like uh, the most about practicing medicine? The detective work in medicine, in medicine, where we we try to find a diagnosis uh, with all the ancillary help that we have, uh, including, of course, ex- radiology. And uh, yeah, that's one of the main features that I, that I like. And to be able to help people has always been, I think, ingrained in me. And sometimes this comes from the way we're brought up. The scientific aspect of it also has always been... Uh, Something to me that is uh, very interesting, and the fact maybe that it's, it's there's so much variety as well in medicine. Uh, no two cases are are similar in some and uh, in, in some ways, and um, and that um, helps to bring down any monotony that one may envisage. As far as advice, what what would you say to a new doctor that's uh, just just arrived here in the Pontiac region specifically. What what would you tell them as far as uh, some pointers here? Try not to overwork. Uh, try not to burn oneself. Uh, just um, do it at a certain at a certain pace. I was given that advice when I arrived here by the director general at that time, who uh, would seen uh, you know other physicians burn out, and so uh, I took that advice, and I think it served me well. I think it uh, is worthwhile um, promoting for all physicians, new physicians. Dr. Lamarche, I want to thank you for your time, but uh, just to wrap up here, uh, I was wondering, uh, I figure I'll give you the the last word here if you want to address uh, your patients or just the public in general, and uh, uh, do you have any sort of, uh, I guess, message for them uh, after so many years uh, serving this, this region? I'm pleased to have served that. The the people at the Pontiac are just great, doing fundraising. They're doing all all kinds of activities. 
to help out their community. And so I admire this, and I, I hope this can continue. There is that the sense of community uh, persists. Uh. So this ends this edition of Viewpoints produced by the Local Journalism Initiative and presented by the Community Radio Fund of Canada in collaboration with campus and community radios throughout the country. You can also listen to our programs in French. They also present a wide variety of subjects covered by journalists working across Canada. Check them out and of course tune in to all the stories produced by our English-speaking journalists based in British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. They can all be found on canada-info.ca canada-info.ca All of our stories are presented there on a daily basis. They allow us to discover Canada and our local communities from different perspectives and viewpoints. Thanks to our journalists Caleb Nickerson, Erica Butler, Craig Osoba, and Anastasia Avakumova. I'm Boris Shasain. Thanks for being with us. Goodbye.